invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. We will be in portions of chapters 22 uh, and 23 this morning. And today we're going to end for a time our journey in 1st and 2nd Kings. And to much of our surprise, it's actually a bright spot we're going to end on. Before the fall of darkness that Judah will soon endure. We turn to King Josiah this morning. And I want us to have in in the back of our minds the exhortation from the book of Hebrews, which reads this way. It says, let us hold fast our confession, the confession of our hope, without wavering. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. There's an exhortation to hold fast the confession of our hope. Because today what we're going to be asking with our king and his people is this. How do we press on in love and good deeds when defeat seems imminent? How do we press on when defeat seems imminent? It's an important question because here in our text, Judah's vitality is waning dramatically. They are soon to be conquered. And it's a question that will be asked by those who are taken into exile very soon. An answer to the question, how do we press on when defeat is imminent? The answer is modeled for us in the life and the reign of King Josiah. He stands as a paragon, as one who pursues holiness, a self-giving love, one who is attentive to God's word. He is a king that in many regards surpasses even King David. And he is a king who prepares the way clearly for King Jesus. And what we'll see this morning is that Josiah's hope in resurrection morning will sustain a people through the darkest of night. And that's a word of hope for us this day as well. Will you join me with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you are patient and kind, that you give us your word. Now we ask that you would give us grace to be attentive to it. Open our ears that we might hear and hearts that we might receive that which you have for us, that our lives might be conformed more into the image of your dear Son, our Savior and King, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's been approximately 41 sermons since I last referenced J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm just kidding. It hasn't been that long. But this morning, we're going to reference it again. Uh, Tolkien's character, Galadriel, fits well with our passage this morning. One of the things that she talks about, and she's weighed down by an impending battle that is unavoidable. She remembers in her life, many lives, ages of conflict, which their world has endured. And she speaks a word that is both despairing and hopeful. She talks about their experience as elves and men fighting together. She says this, together, through the ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. Through the ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. It fits well with the Husker football game, doesn't it? Together through the ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. A world is doomed to chaos and destruction, yet it's inhabited by those who who still love that world and its people. And though conflict exists and, and that world is doomed to defeat, destruction, and death, they fight on a good fight. Now, the kings of Judah and those who inhabit Uh, the life and love exemplified by King David, they too are doomed 
to destruction, death and even exile, and yet they fight on. They fight a good fight, although it is a long defeat. But they fight this fight in hope. King Josiah, he reigns under the doom which was finalized, settled by his grandfather's sins, King Manasseh. God raises up foreign nations in effort to cleanse his people and his land. Yet in the, the impending time here, there is sure defeat. Josiah, in this sure defeat, is, is modeling for a self-giving love, word-saturated worship, holy reform. He's able to fight on in hope, and though defeat is sure, how? How does he, how do we walk on, how do we fight on when we too fight the long defeat? Uh, 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, uh, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Once again, we have an eight-year-old king coming to the throne as the king Joash, generations before, uh, was also ascending the throne as a child. And as Joash, this Josiah must be raised with holy mentors surrounding him. Like Joash at that time, Josiah also reigns as a great reformer of the people, as a temple restorer. Josiah, throughout his story, will be compared time and again to King David. And then describing him as one who did not turn from to the right or to the left, that that's, tells us that he's cut from the cloth of Deuteronomy, as that phrase is used throughout that giving of God's law. We're not going to read 2 Chronicles 34, but it provides maybe a, a sampling of what reforms this King Josiah was fighting for, what he was seeking to purify in this long defeat. At age 16, 2 Chronicles tells us he begins to seek God. His dad, Ammon, grandfather, they were no help to him in this, but he begins to seek God, it says. That's his eighth year of reign. At his twelfth year of reign, when he turns 20, he purges Judah, Jerusalem, of the high places, of, of the images, and he crushes them into idols, of, of the, into dust. He scatters the dust on cursed people and priests and land. And what he does is he goes even into the northern kingdom of, of Israel, which has been conquered in exile, but he begins to cleanse the land up to the north as well. What he's doing is he's cleansing the land in south and north, and he's uniting fully, not under power of might, of military, but under holiness of worship. He's uniting north and south once again. And in our passage now, we come to the 18th year of his reign, his mid-20s. Verse 3 of chapter 22. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, uh, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. Let it be given into the hands of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who were at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. At age 18, he commences to repair the temple. Now, I want us to note this, first of all. It's, it's never too late to turn to the Lord, to walk in humble faithfulness before him. 
it strikes me, this is a young king, and yet it's two decades into his reign before he begins to uh, right the wrongs of the temple abuses. I bring this up because in some seasons of life, we, we may feel like we've not done enough. We've not served humbly enough or zealously enough. We might feel stuck in some seasons or defeated, especially after a year like 2020 and all the difficulties of pandemic rigors and rhythms. But look, the life of following Jesus is a long obedience in the same direction, and he gives us opportunities to begin afresh with renewed vigor, something as simple as a, a basically turning our attention toward God. I guess all I'm saying is it's not too late to walk fervently with Jesus. He's your king, and he is willing to receive your service and to supply the grace which you need. And it begins with a bended knee, a giving of attention to him and to his word. King Josiah is instructing temple finances to be given for their intended purposes. But he doesn't give them to the priest to organize. He gives it directly to the builders how, now. There's no priestly middleman required here. Repairs are begun because what happened was his grandfather, King Manasseh, well, he introduced a lot of false furniture into the temple. He removed other things. He reconstructed. He did an unsanctified temple makeover. And it may be strange for us to, to have so much emphasis placed on a building, right? But what is the temple for those of God's people? The temple is, of course, the converging of heaven and earth so that God can dwell in peace with his people. He can dwell with them as he did in the, the garden. It might make more sense than why emphasis is given to the temple, this building, of the house of God, and why Josiah is seeking to rebuild that house. Josiah is inviting God's presence into the midst of a sinful people. Now, we know this side of the book here that we're in and this side of the Gospels, that Jesus fulfills the temple promises, that Jesus is now our temple, the living temple, risen and ascended to reign on high. Now, verses 8 and following, we have this. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Verse 10, then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Interesting. The book of the law, is it referring to the first five books of the Bible? Maybe it's referring to Deuteronomy or portions of Exodus. We don't know exactly what this is referring to. But what is clear is that the book of the law was hidden amongst the temple rubble for some reason. It was not being read. Kings had been commanded to meditate on the law day and night. And when this book is read, a king is humbled. It spells out both promises and curses for those who would break the oath or the covenant. King Josiah grieves their failure to uphold covenant obligations. It's visible grief. It's loud grief. And he asks his counselors for help. What shall we do next? He's seeking help from God's prophets who are still active in Jerusalem at the time. Verse 14, so Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Akbor Shaphan and Asiah went to Holda, the priestess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Haras, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. They talked with her, and she said to them, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord. The prophetess Huldah is sought out. In the Old Testament, five other prophetesses are mentioned by name. This prophetess speaks to give word of both condemnation and word of vindication, word of defeat and word of hope. Verse 16, she has this. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place, upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not, it will not be quenched. God's unquenchable wrath is about to be let loose upon a corrupt and wicked people. Judah's doom is certain. At this point, nothing can alter God's wrath, as it was for Israel up north. Now those in the south who follow Manasseh's reign in Judah, certain judgment is coming. It's not because God has some petty quarrels to work out with his people or that the kings and the people, priests, did not know what God required of them. Huldah is simply, the prophetess, is simply echoing God's word that those who are unfaithful to God's covenant will be under the curses in which he promised. Access to God would be cut off. People who rebel will be enslaved by idols and by nations that they imitate, and the land will ultimately vomit them out. Those who remain faithful to God, renewing covenant with him, sing the refrain in the midst of this doom, Together through the age of the world, we have fought the long defeat. God is the consuming fire, and his anger is kindled. His wrath will not be quenched. But in the midst of that, a spark of hope ignites. However, and King Josiah is given a word of vindication. Now, verse 18 says this, But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. How do we live when defeat is imminent? Josiah here seeks a humble response to God and to his word, and we do well to do likewise. Grief. Over chaos and brokenness of sin is proper. The king has torn his clothes and he weeps over their rebellion and their sin. Sorrow over the part that we play in that sin. In the groaning of all of creation, the roles that we play in that. It's right. It is good. Josiah, in tearing his robe, seeks God's prophets and their, her instructions. His life instructs us in sorrow that leads to repentance, a turning from sin, a turning toward God. Though he is angry, his wrath very hot. Vindication is promised to God's king, verse 20. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. The walls of Josiah's house are crumbling all around him, and yet King Josiah is promised deliverance. He's promised deliverance not from the doom, 
but through it. See, the axe will still fell the great tree of Judah, but Josiah will be spared that sorrow. His death will come in battle, but from the sorrows which Jeremiah recounts in his prophecy and in his book of Lamentations, Josiah will be spared. Now, Josiah had a great-great-great-grandfather whose name was Hezekiah. He, too, lived under imminent doom, and God promised to spare him for 15 more years, if you remember that story. And what was his response to that extension of life? He says, Hezekiah, a good king, he says this, well, why not destruction if there is peace in my days? But how does Josiah respond? When imminent doom and the walls of his house come crumbling down all around him, how does he respond when doom is imminent? 23 verse 1, then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. The king acts to renew covenant with God. Renew his covenant on behalf of his people with their king and their God. He doesn't rest in the fact that he will not have to undergo the, the turmoil and the fall of Jerusalem, maybe as Hezekiah, his great-grandfather, had done before him. But the, what, the verses that follow say this, the king sent, the king went up to the house of the Lord, the king read, the king stood, the king commanded, the king broke down, the king burned houses of idols to fight the long defeat. Josiah perched, he purified the land. There is no resignation in fighting the good fight. The king, upon hearing doom and upon hearing salvation, sets to work fighting for holiness, for truth, for right worship. And the foundation that he builds this fight upon is the word of God. And he brings all the people in the region to that word that they also might respond, respond in like. Verse 2 says that he read the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. Verse 3, and the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. As the head goes, so goes the body. The king is reentering re into covenant, renewing covenant with this God and the people follow. As the head goes, so goes the body. The remainder of chapter 23, two verbs are used continuously, to stand and to hear. People of all ages from all walks of life are gathered to hear the king read God's law. In obedience to that word, the king covenants with God to build his house and the house of God's people upon the rock of God's word. From God's word, holy reform is pursued with vengeance. In the same way that Elisha crosses the Jordan to reconquer the land, so we see King Josiah conquering the land once again, but not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit. I won't read the rest of 23, but I'll try to summarize it this way. The king, he goes on to commands purgation of the temple, removing vessels, unholy vessels in service to Baal and Asherah, Take them outside the city, he commands, and destroy them. Josiah deposed priests to those false gods. He burned houses of idolatry. He tore down high places in Jerusalem and throughout Judah. 
And as he moves out from Jerusalem, he continues to heal and to cleanse the land of the high places, altars to foreign gods, destroying places of defilement and abomination. King Josiah, Yah, Yahweh, heals. Yahweh restores. That's King Josiah, and that is exactly what God has commissioned him to do throughout the land. Josiah then goes from Jerusalem uh, throughout Judah, and then he goes into the to Israel. He crosses their northern border. He begins tearing down altars, and the altar that King Jeroboam set up generations ago, 300 years ago, that he set up in, uh, in Bethel. Finally, a king demolishes that sin which infected Israel and Judah for generations. He continues the cleansing of that region, that healing of that land and the people before returning once more to Jerusalem. And when he returns to Jerusalem, what does he do? He organizes the feast in the peace of God's redemption. Josiah, in accordance with God's word, commands the celebration of the Passover feast. God's house is being healed. God's word is being heard and followed. God's people now are invited to sit to eat the meal of God's deliverance, to dine as one people from the north and from the south, consuming in peace the gift of God's grace. And all of this is done while the axe of God's doom is speeding down upon his people. And what is the assessment that we have of King Josiah from the scriptures? Chapter 23, verse 25 says this, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Because the commendation says that in some ways he was greater than King David. That he's a new Moses who's giving God's word to his people. And no greater king will arise after him. Within four ascending kings, Judah will fall to Babylon. Doom is imminent. Defeat is certain. And yet Josiah fights the good fight. Josiah fights the long defeat. See, there is ever hope for followers of the heir of King Josiah, those who follow King Jesus, because in him there is always access to the living God. That access is ever open through his son, the living temple, who was Jesus Christ. And though Josiah could not accomplish this, in King Jesus, death is defeated. And those in Christ will know eternal life in the same way that a kernel of wheat which dies in the ground rises to bear fruit. This is true. This is our hope. And yet, corruption persists in our hearts as well as our bodies. It persists throughout all of creation. Death still consumes. We continue to forget our God. We hurt those whom we are called to love and to serve. Satan yet prowls around looking to consume. Sin still infects. Sin still infests. How do we fight the long defeat? We walk forward in faith, hope, and love. That's what we see from the life of King Josiah, and I hold out his life to us. We walk forward in faith, 
seeking to hear God's voice in his word, in relationship with his body. God's people stood before the king as he read from God's word. And so we hear from God, ready to serve, though that service may be met only with more darkness and with doom. It is faith that drew from Job's lips, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Josiah gathered all people from all walks of life and all ages, encouraging them, inviting them to conform their walk with God according to that word. Who could make sense of God's delay in judgment? Who could make sense of his unbending wrath, which will soon be poured out? And still, they stand to hear. And still, they walk on in holiness. See, hope is not some substance to be poured into our lives. Hope is merely love moving forward toward God's good end for us and for his creation. Inviting God's kingdom to come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Stepping into the small roles which he gives us as faithfully as possible. See, hope acknowledges failure. Hope acknowledges sin, but it confesses to God, to one another, and then we rise in forgiveness to walk on in hope. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and his reign are the rock upon which our houses of faith and hope are built. It was self-giving love which moved Josiah to rebuild temple and to reform society. And we are called in Jesus Christ to that same self-giving love because he first gave himself in love for us in order that we might receive God's love to love God and others in return. See, the thing is that deliverance for Josiah was not deliverance from death, right? He would soon die. The doom would fall upon him as well. His deliverance was not from that death or doom, but through it. He hoped in God's word. And at the end, that is all that we have. As well, God's living word, who is Jesus Christ, has come as God's true and final healer, as God's full restorer. Deliverance for us and for our world will come, not as a deliverance from death, as Jesus was not delivered from death, but deliverance will come through it. We fight on. We fight the long defeat but we don't despair, nor do we give up. We sing in accord with the book of Hebrews, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Because he who promised is faithful, and his promise to us is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that promise is this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Press on, brothers and sisters, in love and good deeds. Fight the good fight of faith, which I have won. Come to me, and you will find rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. And I pray now that as it's been read and preached, and we've heard it, O Lord, help us to receive it with patience, that we might begin understanding more what it is to walk after you. Give us grace, mercy, and love to walk steadfastly after you, holding fast to our confession, who is Jesus Christ, that our lives might be an aroma 
of goodness to those around us, that they might see Christ as well. Bless us, we pray now in Jesus' name.